Uh, Luke 14, verse 25. Let's read verse 25 and 26 together. Ready? Here we go. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. What an interesting uh, couple of verses, especially when we're preaching about love. God says here we're to hate our family. Now that may make you curious as to why then I have titled the sermon, Christ Loved His Family. Christ loved his family. Pastor, uh, Jesus told everyone to hate their family, but yet Christ loved his family. Which one is it? And the answer is yes. Yes. Through the, through the process of the message this morning, I'm going to show you how that the blood brothers and sisters of Jesus felt at times as though he hated them, but at the end they would realize that instead he deeply loved them. Now, I want to ask you this question. Are you willing to love your family the way that Christ loved his family? I think it's time we evaluate that today. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to take the truths found out of your life when it came to your blood brothers and sisters, your mom and your, your, your stepdad, Lord, help us to apply those in our homes. And Lord, may someone's mentality shift a little bit today when it comes to their family life. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Everyone here today uh, has some family. Some of you in here today are not married. uh, And you think, oh boy, here we go, another family on the home. And I don't have uh, family at home. Well, do you have a brother or sister? Do you have a mom or dad? Some of you here today say, well, I'm married, but I don't have any children. And I would just ask you, well, again, do you have a spouse? Do you have uh, other family? Everyone today has family. In fact, I don't know, and maybe you could let me know that this is your situation. I may not just be thinking straight here. But off the top of my head, I can't think of anyone in the church that doesn't have any family at all in their life whatsoever. All of us, I believe, have some sort of family somewhere, at least that are connected to this church. Uh, What an odd passage to read, especially for a sermon entitled, Christ Loved His Family. Anytime I have heard this passage read, or I have read this passage myself, I have scratched my head as to what this means. I'm to hate, I'm to hate my father and my mother and uh, and my wife, I'm to hate my children and my brethren and my sisters. In order to be the disciple of Christ, there would seem to be a contradiction with Scripture. Doesn't Scripture command us to obey and honor our parents? How are we to obey and honor our parents if we don't love them? Uh, And doesn't Scripture command us to love our brother? I mean, after all, the Greek word uh, to affectionately love People is the word phileo, which means brotherly love. So, which is it? Am I supposed to love my brother, or am I supposed to hate my brother? Ephesians 5 commands husbands to love their wives, and Ephesians 6 tells parents they are to nurture and admonish their children. 
So which is it, Lord? Are we supposed to hate our families or are we to love them? Look no further than the life of Christ and what you find is uh, that his home life, whether what you find is exactly what his home life was like. Now, let's let Jesus set the standard for how it is that we are to love our families. And we will see there was often contention between Jesus and his earthly family. But in the end, his earthly family would deeply and passionately love him. Now, the journey wasn't easy, but the destination, I believe, is what we all should desire. Christian, I propose that when it comes to family matters, watch this now, our priority, our purpose, and our passion should be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our priority our purpose, our passion should be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, White Oak Baptist Church, the gospel is not the diving board. The gospel is the pool. It's the swimming pool. Everything about the Christian life should revolve around and have to do with the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything you do as it relates to your family should have in its preeminence, in its priority, should have at uh, its core as the purpose, should have as its driving passion the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must understand that if we make this our priority, passion, and purpose, that this will rub some family members the wrong way at times. Now, be, be, be sure to understand we're called to be gracious, but we're to be firm in our priorities. Jesus' passion for the gospel caused friction with his family. Again, Jesus' passion for the gospel caused friction at home. But in the end, his family bought in to what he was saying and who he was and what he was all about. Christian, here's the question for you again this morning. Are you willing, are you prepared to love your family the way that Christ loved His family? Even if it means some contention. Even if it means some strife. Now, I don't have these verses in my uh, notes this morning, but I remember that Jesus said, Think not that I am come to bring peace, but a sword. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. He said that he would divide mother and father, husband and wife. Why? Because when you take a stand for the gospel, it creates division. It can very well create division. Are you willing to love your family the way Christ loved his family? If you received a bulletin on your way in this morning, on the back of your bulletin, there is a fill-in-the-blank outline, and I would encourage you to take notes as we go along today. Let's look closely at four observations as we consider this thought, our pattern of love 
how Christ loved his family. Number one, the dynamics of his family. The dynamics of his family. We're going to be flipping all over the Gospels this morning. Hold your place where we began. We'll be back at those verses at the very end of the sermon. Turn over to Luke chapter number 1 and verse number 26. Luke number 1 and verse number 26. The dynamics of his family. Many of you in here, um, uh, the dynamics of your family are are unique. They're uh, a little bit different than maybe what other people have. Or you feel as though they're different. Well, Jesus can relate with the dynamics of a family uh, that maybe it wouldn't be the traditional setup. Look at verse number 26. The Bible says that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin, notice there, this woman was a virgin, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. Wow. Uh, I just picture Mary home alone. She's maybe folding laundry or washing dishes or sweeping a floor. And all of a sudden, this deep male voice started speaking to her. Can you imagine how much that must have rattled her? How much that must have scared her? Last night I was studying my Bible and I had some uh, uh, noise-canceling earphones in so that my loud, ravenous family would not bother me. Amen? And I uh, was sitting at the, the kitchen table or dining room table and I was doing some studying and I was listening to some soft intra- instrumental uh, hymnal type music and all of a sudden the Spotify channel went to a commercial break and the volume went from here to here and it went from music to a woman uh, trying to sell me something and it scared me to death. I came flying out of the chair almost. Oh man, I just jumped and got scared. And I I'm a man and a woman scared me. I can't imagine a woman being alone in the house and having a man all of a sudden just appear there in the room and start speaking to her. She must have been terrified. And what did that angel say? That angel said, hey, guess what, Virgin Mary? Guess what? You're pregnant. Now, if his presence wasn't enough to scare her, can you imagine the message, how much that must have scared her? I'm pregnant? I can't possibly be pregnant. I've never been with a man. Oh, no, no. You're pregnant and you are expecting God. Say, what? And sure enough, and over the next few weeks, she would realize, yep, my body is acting like a pregnant woman's body would act. And Virgin Mary would give birth to baby Jesus. And then Joseph, her fiancé, would marry her behind that. And they, Mary and Joseph, would have more babies. Turn over to Mark chapter 6 
and verse number 3. And we, we're going to read about the half-siblings of Jesus, the half-brothers and half-sisters of Jesus. They would share the same mother, but would not share the same father. Look at Mark chapter 6 and verse number 3. The Bible says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother, notice the half-brothers are listed by names, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters, no, we don't have their names, but are not his sisters here with us, and they were offended at him. So uh, we see here that Jesus had four half-brothers. They're listed by name, James, Joseph, Judah and Simon, and, uh, and he had half-sisters. And so there were at least seven children in this home. We know he had at least two half-sisters, and he had four half-brothers. So that's six, and when you add him, that's seven. So that was one busy home, and if he had more than two half-sisters, boy, that was one big family. Now, many people look at the 1950s sitcoms, Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best, and they view the traditional home, you know, you have a man and a woman, and they meet, and they get married, and they get married, and then they have children after they get married, and, you know, they stay married uh, all the way uh, through to the grave, to one of them dies, and the children grow up with, uh, with, with one mom and one dad, and there's no half-siblings or step-siblings, uh, everyone comes together, and, you know, everyone rather is one family, and it's a, what we call a traditional uh, uh, family. And, you know, there are people who don't have that and they're envious of that and wish they had that. And I would say to you today that if that's not your setup, if that's not what you have, Jesus can relate with you. Now, Jesus was not born in any way that was illegitimate. Jesus was not an illegitimate child, okay? But Jesus knew what it was like to have uh, siblings that shared one, uh, 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 one spouse, or rather one parent, but not another. And listen, that created uh, uh, problems as well. I'm sure that uh, in this home, it must have been both uh, cool and it must have been complicated to have a mother and a father, or rather to be, uh, to have Jesus, uh, the Son of God, as your child and as your sibling. Uh, Christmas time is getting uh, ready to be upon us and the Christmas music will begin playing in the stores. In fact, I think they probably started playing Christmas music in stores like back in July or something. Have you been to a uh, Have you been to one of these hardware stores in the last few weeks? Have you noticed they're already selling Christmas trees? Like they started that like a month and a half ago. What's up with that, right? Uh, but Christmas music and you know one of the Christmas songs that are played uh, this time of the year, even sang in a lot of churches, is the song "Mary, Did You Know?" Mary, did you know? Um, I think Mary probably knew. Can, and one of the one of the lines in that song is, "Mary, did you know that when you kiss the face of your baby, you're kissing the face of God?" Wow! Uh, can you imagine the awesome responsibility of having to raise God? That I'm sure that was cool, right? To use a a uh, 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 an English slang word, I'm sure that was pretty awesome, pretty awe inspiring. But I'm sure that also is very complicated. How about being the brother or sister of the Godchild? Um, I heard a joke one time, and um, the joke was that Jesus went outside and left the door open, 
And Mary said to Jesus, Jesus, close the door. What was wrong with you? Were you born in a barn? No, but uh, can you imagine that you know someone stole a handful of chips out of the chip bag, or someone took the last uh, you know ice cream sandwich out of the freezer without asking? And Mary and Joseph say, "All right, fess up. Who did it?" And someone says, "Jesus did it." And they said, "He's God. There's no way he did it." Must have been complicated to be siblings with Jesus. It must have been tough. Boy, I know in school, uh, when I turned in work that was just half done and, you know, not done real well, and you always had that kid in your class who was, like, perfect. You know, the teacher said, I need 10 to 15 note cards, and this child turned in 20. You know, just to, just to outdo everyone. And, you know, the teacher looks at you and says, why can't you be like him? Or why can't you be like her? Usually it was a her. Well, why can't you be like her? And he's like, oh, I can't stand that person. I'm sure that it was complicated. I'm sure that the, the, the dynamic in the home where Jesus grew up was complicated. Number one, uh, we see uh, the dynamics of his family. Number two, we see the disunity within the family. The disunity within the family. Not everything was hunky-dory in the home where Jesus grew up. Not everything w- went well. Letter A, notice, lots of tension. Lots of tension. Take your Bibles over to Luke chapter 2 and verse number 42. Now, we only get one story about the life of Jesus before his earthly ministry, and that story takes place when he is a 12-year-old boy. Each year, his family would take a trip uh, to Jerusalem, probably multiple times they would take a trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem, but in this particular story, they're traveling there for the Passover feast, and that was the biggest of the feasts, and uh, they would go there, and they would travel in a pact, they would travel with other family and friends from Nazareth uh, to Jerusalem, and they would spend some time there, and then they would all pick up as a family unit and friends, and they would head home, and oftentimes, the children would get dispersed among the other families, and uh, children could get, uh, uh, maybe you wouldn't even see your child for two or three days, because they're hanging out with their cousins, or their aunt, or their uncle, and you know, you have uh, a quarter mile or half a mile of people traveling, and uh, you know, you, you, you maybe would lose track of a child, and such was the case here, where they lost track of Jesus, and they get into the trip two or three days, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. And so, uh, I can only imagine the fret and worry in the voice of Mary. I can see her pacing, and I can see her uh, uh, just just up and up in a tizzy. And uh, she tells Joseph, "I can't believe it. We were trusted." to watch after the God-man uh, in the form of a child, and we lost him. We blew it! And I can see Joseph being the typical man, and looking at his wife and saying, Relax. He's God. I think he can fend for himself just fine. He created us. He created the universe. I don't think anything's going to happen to him. Uh, but they get back to Jerusalem, they're looking everywhere for him, and they find him in the, in the temple, uh, talking doctrine uh, with the, the, the religious elite. Look at verse 42 of Luke 2. The Bible says, And when they, Mary and Joseph, found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished and at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, 
You can hear her scolding him here. Why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And Joseph probably looked back to her and said, I wasn't sorrowing, you were. (laughs) Verse 49. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wish ye not that I must be about my father's business? Jesus, at 12 years old, knew exactly who he was and what he had been put on earth to do. Verse 50. And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down unto them and came to Nazareth uh, and was subject unto them, obedient unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And so we see here a little bit of tension between Jesus and his parents. I can't imagine what it must have been like for Jesus to be subservient to flawed humans that you had a part in creating. I can't imagine what it must have been like for Mary and Joseph to try to be the parents and the leaders and the caretakers of the person who made them and was God on earth. And uh, no doubt at times there was tension caused. Turn over to John chapter number 2 and verse number 1. John chapter 2 and verse number 1. Here we find Jesus at the age of 30. And at 30 years old, Jesus is getting ready to start his earthly ministry. And Mary knew exactly who Jesus was and what he was there to do. And Mary did what any good mother ought to do. Mary was going to give Jesus a push out of the nest. She was going to tell Jesus, hey, it's time for you to get doing what you were sent here to do. Look at verse number 1 of John chapter 2. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus, that's Mary, was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, look at the tension here, Woman, (laughs) I don't know if in Greek that had, or in the Israeli culture, that had the same connotation that it has in English. But anytime a man gets frustrated with a woman and calls her a woman, I think that that's... I always chuckle at that. Um, I, I, don't, I try not to do that. I get in trouble if I do that. Um, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. It's not time yet. And Mary's like, uh, Yes, it is time. Look at verse 5. His mother saith unto the servant, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And Jesus would perform the miracle. Was it time for Jesus to start his earthly ministry or not? I don't know. Okay, But I do know this, Mary thought it was. And Mary was there giving Jesus a push out of the nest. So there were times where there was a rub, there was tension, there was disunity within the family between Jesus and his mother. But the rub did not just stop with his mom. The rub continued with his siblings. Let her be, notice, lack of trust. Lack of trust. Turn over to John chapter 7 and verse number 1. You're in John chapter 2. Turn over just a couple of chapters to John chapter number 7. And here we find some snarky, sarcastic, unbelieving uh, brothers who are uh, not being very nice to Jesus. And we see that there is animosity and there is is, uh, doubt and uh, there is a lack of belief that Jesus is who he claims to be. Look at John chapter 7, verse 1. The Bible says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, or would not walk in Jerusalem, because the Jews sought to kill him. So, can you see the spot Jesus got himself into? Here it's year 1 or 2, probably year 2 of his ministry, and Jesus 
feels that he can't go back to Jerusalem because the religious elites, if they see him, they are desirous to take him and kill him. Look at verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Now look at his sarcastic, snarky brothers. And if you don't believe that they're being sarcastic here, by the time we get down to verse 5, you'll see that they are. Verse 3. His brethren therefore saith unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth these things in secret, and he himself seeketh uh, to be known openly. They're judging his motives. Uh, if thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Hey, if you really are who you claim to be, prove it. Look at verse 5. For neither did his brethren believe in him. His own brothers, his own sisters did not believe that Jesus was God. Now you may remember that shortly after Jesus began his earthly ministry, he went back to his hometown of Nazareth. And the Bible says he did not many miracles there because of their unbelief. Have you heard the phrase, in fact, finish it for me, ready? Familiarity breeds... You know what that means? That means if I become familiar enough with something that's good, eventually I will stop liking it. I will stop liking it. These brothers and sisters had gotten so close to the situation that they lost focus on who he really was, and they stopped believing in him. They chose not to believe in him. Now let me give you some context, if I could, to John chapter 7. If you were to take the time to back up one chapter, what you find in John 6 is that Jesus fed the 5,000. You remember that? He took the five loaves and the two fishes and he divided it and he fed 5,000 people plus the women and the children. And then after that, there were 12, uh, 12 baskets rather of food left over remaining. And then the people were so wowed and amazed at that 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 night when Jesus sent his disciples in the boat across the Sea of Galilee, he went up into a mountain to pray. And then that night, while he was up in the mountain praying, the disciples in the boat got into some tumultuous waters. So Jesus walked on the water to them, and then he, he ended up on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Well, the crowd that he fed stayed there and waited for Jesus the next morning to come out of the mountain. And when Jesus was not there, they all of a sudden began looking for him. You know what they wanted? They wanted Jesus to feed him again. And so they went around the Sea of Galilee, and they found Jesus on the other side. And they asked Jesus, how did you get over here? And he ignores their question, and he judges them and says, you just want me to feed you again. And then he preaches to them what the Bible calls a hard sermon. He said to them that to eat my flesh is to believe in me and to drink my blood is to, is to follow me. And he said to them, if you really want to be my disciple, then eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the Bible says that the saying was too hard and many would cease following him and reject him. Now watch this. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he hit his apex of, of, of being famous. After that sermon, he took a steep fall off a cliff and he became infamous. 
all of a sudden, Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and says, Will ye also go away? Jesus went from having thousands of people following him to 12. Jesus went from being popular to now in Jerusalem. He couldn't even go there because they wanted to kill him. Where do we turn when we're reeling and we're hurt? We turn to our family. John chapter 7, Jesus turns to his family and what do they do? They reject him. They reject him. Boy, here Jesus has caused his own brothers and sisters to somehow believe that he hates them. You know what was really going on here is that Jesus' priority, his purpose, and his passion was the gospel. And because he prioritized the gospel, those brothers and sisters felt as though Jesus hated them. Now, that passage in Mark where we began is beginning to make a little bit more sense. Lack of trust. The disunity within the family. Notice number three, the dedication shown to his mother. The dedication shown to his mother. Did Jesus hate his brothers and sisters and his mother and his father? Boy, they sure thought he did. They sure thought he did. But did he actually hate them? Oh, no. Oh, no. Take your Bibles, if you would, over to uh, Luke chapter number 1 in verse number 46. You know, Mary understood it. Mary got it. She knew how much better... She knew much better than, uh, than, the other, than the other children, than her other children, rather, who Jesus was. Uh, she knew that Jesus was born to die for the sins of the world. Watch this. And she knew that Jesus was born to die for her own sin. Now, anytime I say something that strongly opposes Catholic doctrine or live stream, there ends up being a person or two who takes great exception to it. So before those of you watching online go into the comment section and just blast me, let me get, give me a minute to, to, to explain this here. The Bible is very clear that there is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible is very clear that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The only human being ever to live and not commit a single sin was the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone else is a sinner, and that includes Mary. That includes Mary. Now, Mary was a good woman. Mary was a great woman. But Mary was a sinner. Mary was a sinner. You say, well, how dare you make such a strong statement. Oh, I didn't make it. Mary declared herself a sinner. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Here Mary has received the news and has come to grips with the fact that she's expecting and she's pregnant as a virgin. In Luke chapter 1, verse 46, she's rejoicing. The Bible says, And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. You know what that means? That means she needed a Savior. You know who needs a Savior? Sinners need Saviors. Because if you're perfect, you don't need a Savior. 
You know, many nights as a teenage boy, I had a very good relationship with my parents. But I had an especially good relationship with my mother. Many nights as a teenage boy, when I was in senior high, I would sit at the table um, with my mom. And we would just talk about life. And, um, you know, my, my dad was in bed, my brothers and sisters were in bed. Sometimes it would be 11, 1130 at night. And we'd talk till 1 in the morning. And I talked to my mom about everything. I talked to my mom about girls and crushes I had, and I don't ever talk to Angela about that, amen? <laughs> I talked to her about sports, and one year I played on a, a basketball team where we weren't undefeated, we were defeated. We lost every single game that year. <laughs> and I was the MVP of a defeated team, so um, I guess I wasn't very good, but I was the best of the worst. Uh, but I talked to her about sports, I talked to her about friends, I talked to her about youth group, I talked to her about, you know, my vision and my dreams of one day being a pastor. I talked to her about how much I loved God and what I'd gotten out of my Bible, and she'd tell me what she got out of her Bible, and we would, we would talk, and there was this deep heart connection uh, felt with my mother that was intense and real. You know, I imagine that Jesus probably had many nights where his siblings were in bed and Jesus sat at a table made by his carpenter father and in chairs made by his carpenter father and the two of them would sit around that table, Mary and Jesus, and Jesus would expound on the scriptures to his mother and say, you see here in the 22nd chapter of Genesis how Abraham and Isaac made their way up the mountain and Isaac was laid down on the altar to be sacrificed. He said to his mother, he said, now this is the written word, but I am the living word. And you understand that Isaac was a picture of me. I wonder if there weren't times where Jesus said, hey, Mary, I was born, mother, I was born to die. Mother, one day they're going to take me. And oh, he, he took over to the 53rd chapter of Isaiah and said, you see these passages about stripes being laid on the back and uh, uh, the, the process of the crucifixion and the nails in the hands and the feet. He said, Mom, one day they're going to nail me to a cross. One day they're going to beat my back. One day the sins of the world are going to be laid on me. And one day my throne will be a cross. Boy, when Jesus was nailed to that cross, Mary was not at all surprised. But can I tell you, it didn't make it any easier for Mary to watch her son suffer. I remember back in 2011, we had a couple in our church, Mike and Tanya Carricker. And they had a son named Michael, Mike Jr. And Michael was five, six years old and uh, he had to have a very delicate surgery. And uh, weeks and months, they went to doctor's appointments, and the day came for Michael's surgery. You know, uh, Tanya knew that her son was going under the knife. She had time to mentally prepare for it, and she knew that it was going to be a long and, and, and intense surgery. But, you know, that day I got in my car and I drove to Walter Reed Medical Center. Uh, the dad uh, had been uh, a military man for 20 years, a career, career military guy. And I sat there in Walter Reed Medical Center, and I uh, fellowshiped with them and tried to help them through that four- or five-hour-long surgery. There were times where I'd get talking to Mike about something, and I'd look over and worry and concern and 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 
just this dreaded look would be on Tanya's face. And I would see a tear run down her cheek. And Mike and I would stop and try to comfort her and help her. Tanya knew that surgery was coming for her son. But as much as she could prepare, as much as she could brace herself, it was still tough to watch her son go through something so hurtful and serious. And you know, I imagine as Mary stood there and watched Jesus get beaten and bloodied, and watch the nails go through his hands and his feet, and watch them tear her son limb for limb, I'm sure it just crushed her heart. Oh, she understood it. She got it. She knew why he was there. She knew the purpose of why he was born. She knew why it was that he was going to die. She probably fully understood that he was going to stand up from death and raise again. But at that moment where she's at the base of the cross and she's watching her son die, I can only imagine the agony that was in her heart. Every mother in here today that has a son, imagine your son up there on that cross. Imagine watching him be brutally murdered up on that tree. Look at John chapter 19, verse 25. In that moment where uh, Jesus is suffering, in that moment where Jesus is in an immense pain, you know what Jesus did? He loved his mother. Look at John 19, verse 25. The Bible says, And there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. So three Marys there. Uh, you have two, two sisters named Mary and then uh, Mary Magdalene, the woman that Jesus healed. Verse 26, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, that's a reference to John, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then said he to that disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own house. You know, I've often wondered if the reason why John was the only disciple of the twelve, or rather of the eleven that were left, that did not die a martyr's death, I've often wondered if the reason was is because he was responsible for taking care of mom. I don't know that to be, but I've often wondered. Jesus was not going to let John die a martyr's death because someone had to take care of mom. You know, uh, many people uh, study the Bible and believe this to be so. uh, But the first commandment with promise in Exodus 20 is that we honor our father and our mother. You know, in America, we have a retirement system where we save and save and save and save and save and save and save so that ideally the last 20 years or so of our life we go on a long vacation. But, you know, that hasn't been the culture. That isn't the culture of most of the world. And it definitely hasn't been the culture throughout the history of time. Now listen here, listen here. Some of you really need to hear what I'm about to say right here. Could it be that to honor your mother and father means to financially support them in their latter years into the grave? You know, Jesus, before he died, made sure to pass an assignment over to John. He made sure that his mother was going to be taken care of. You say, well, where was Joseph? Many... Bible scholars believe that Joseph had passed away by this time. That Mary was a widow. And you know, uh, in today's day and age, women can fend for themselves uh, economically. They can go out and get a job. And, you know, there's a, a push for equal pay amongst the genders. But in Jesus' day, it was not so. You were a woman. You, you couldn't just go out and earn an income and pay your own bills. You were relying on a man to take care of you. 
Jesus, before he died, made sure that he showed his mother honor and said, Mom, you see that disciple right there? He is the one that's going to take care of you. And, and, and Mom, you make sure you let him take care of her. The dedication of his brothers. Notice, or rather, um, uh, the, de, um, no, right, the dedication. Number four, and lastly, notice the dedication of his brothers. The dedication of his brothers. Jesus' siblings would finally come around and accept Jesus as the Messiah. Let me prove that to you. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 3. 1 Corinthians 15 verse number 3. This is something I had never seen before in Scripture until I put this message together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 3. And it can be a little confusing because we don't have last names in the Bible and so sometimes when a name is mentioned, we're not really sure who the Bible is referring to. And that does create a little bit of, um, of vagueness. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm going to show you something here I think is pretty neat. Look at verse number 3. Paul writes to the church of Corinth, For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that how Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Look here. And that He was seen of Cephas. That's speaking of Peter. That's the disciple of Jesus. Peter, the one that stood up and preached at Pentecost, uh, uh, Cephas, then of the twelve. And that, by the way, that lines up with the account of the gospel. Verse 6, after that he was seen of about 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Now look at verse 7. After that, after that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. So notice the order here. Notice the order here. Jesus shows himself to Peter and then the eleven. And then Jesus shows himself to about 500 people who were saved at one time. And then another separate event. Jesus goes and he seeks out James. Which James is this? It wouldn't be the James that were the disciples because he's already appeared unto the twelve. He went and sought out his half-brother James. The same James that doubted him in John 7. Jesus went and sought out his half-brother. And it wasn't a, see, I told you so. It was a, hey James, I love you. Hey James, I gave my life for the gospel. And I want you to believe in me. Turn over to Acts chapter 1 and verse number 14. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall... When James left that account with Jesus and went and found uh, uh, Joseph and Cephas and Jude and his sisters and went in there and said, Hey, guess what? Our half-brother Jesus, he's alive! It was all true. We were wrong to doubt him. Oh, I would have loved to have been there for that. You say, well, did everybody else come around? Seemingly, yes. Seemingly, yes. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women. Look here. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. The brethren of Jesus showed up and were part of the 120 that prayed and brought the great explosion of the church scene. Let me finish the message this morning by giving you some points of practicality. I would encourage you to find a place to write these four down. I'm going to give them to you with little to no comment. We're almost done here. Number one, prioritize the gospel above all else. When it comes to your family, prioritize the gospel above all else. 
please, please, please write these down. Prioritize the gospel above all else. I grew up in a home where we, we found our fun at church and through the program of the church. Quality time with dad was visiting a bus route. Quality time with mom was her putting meals together to take to people who were sick or shut in. Um, and I am doing my best to try to raise my family the same way. I want my children to know what it means to, for everything we do to be at the, go- the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be at the forefront. Again, again, listen, the gospel is not the diving board of the Christian life. It is the swimming pool. It is the swimming pool. The gospel ought to be what we prioritize. Everything that goes on in your home ought to be about advancing the gospel message. Number two, involve your family in the gospel mission. Involve your family. Hey, get creative. It's not just enough to send them to Sunday school and junior church. It's not just enough to have them in teen church. It's not just enough uh, to bring your wife to church. Find a way to involve your entire family in the gospel mission. Again, we're going to love our family the way Christ loved his family. Number three, don't let criticism take you off course. Don't let criticism take you off course. Here's what I have found. If you become radical about the gospel, someone in your family is not going to like it. Don't let their criticism take you off course. They may not, you, listen, you may even have parents who are of a, a different religion, who may not be saved. You may have parents who are secular and don't even go to church at all. You might have adult brothers and sisters that think you're a weirdo and a nut for going to church so much. Uh, you may have a wife or a husband who just wants to disown you because uh, you are doing so much with church and they give you a hard time about your involvement here. Your children might fight you and drag their feet when it comes to church. Don't let their criticism take you off course. Number four, be patient and prayerful with those who do not understand your priority. Be patient and prayerful with those who do not understand your priority. You know, when the brothers of Jesus doubted him in John 7, Jesus didn't give up on his brothers. He just loved them anyway. I'm sure it hurt to be stabbed in the back. I'm sure it hurt to have your own blood deny who you really are. But Jesus didn't hold a grudge. After he rose from the dead, he sought out James and affirmed him. Now, turn back over to Luke 14 where we began, and we'll finish the sermon here again. Luke 14 and verse number 25. Luke 14, verse 25. I think now that these verses are going to make a whole lot more sense to us than they did at the beginning of the message. Luke 14, verse 25. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciples. When you have a parent, or rather when you have a family member that gives you an ultimatum between the gospel of Jesus Christ and them, and you choose the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're not going to feel like you love them so much. But if you really love them, your priority will be the gospel. How about it today? Are you loving your family the way Christ loved his family? Now, I've got to tell you, I can't promise you you'll have the same results as Jesus. 
but you prioritize the gospel anyway. And you leave the results up to the Lord. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning.